Focusing in on on this one Thursday a month on sections of the word that talk about future events. Um, Not so much the ones that God has already predicted accurately, though we have covered those to some degree at some different times. But more so talking about the future events that are still to come. Because those events surround Jesus' second coming and that's what we're all looking forward to. And he told us those things in God's word so that we could understand the times we live in and be excited um, knowing how close we are to his return. And so uh, what we've been doing uh, for, I don't know, probably almost a year now is we've been tracking through uh, the book of Daniel, which is a book that contains a lot of Bible prophecy. So we kind of, every other, though even the last two months, we've spent going through the word because we want to know what the word says first. So last month we were in Daniel 9. And then we look at um, the the current events that are happening in the world as they pertain to those future events. These future events still not happening, but definitely seeing things happening in the world that are leading up to these events that are letting us know that we're closer and closer to the Lord's return. So that's what we're going to do this month. We're having like a roundtable discussion on some of the specific things we covered last month. And just to refresh our minds, I want to go through the specific section of Daniel 9, where we're going to kind of spend the time today talking about current events, and that's uh, Daniel 9 in verses 24 through uh, uh, the end of the chapter, which is um, 27, where basically this um, future, uh, the future of Israel, if you will, is given to Daniel um, by this angel uh, who got this message from God. And if my voice sounds kind of cracked, because I was at kids camp all week, so I'm really straining to talk, so forgive me. But um, uh, hopefully it'll keep my talking so I don't go still longer, um, like we saw in Acts 19, or Acts 20. Anyways, so um, this specific section of scripture was a prophecy about the, the history of Israel, the future history of Israel, talking about seven weeks, or as we talked about, 77-year periods, and what we looked at was that 69 of those periods have already happened in the history of Israel. And we kind of went through that history where those things were fulfilled. And there's still a seven-week period to come, or a seven-year period, which we also know from other parts of Scripture, especially Revelation, as the Great Tribulation, this time that's going to start after the rapture of God's church or where we are caught up to be with the Lord in heaven. And uh, God's judgment and wrath is poured down on an unrepenting world. Um, and uh, during that time, there's going to be a figure that rises up called the Antichrist who is going to be satanically influenced and he's going to kind of lead this world empire. And ultimately, at the end of that seven-year tribulation period, Jesus is going to come back and he is going to defeat the Antichrist, defeat Satan, and establish his kingdom on this earth for a thousand years before the new heaven and new earth are ushered in where we're going to live for eternity with him. Amen. Amen. That's what we get excited about. So um, the specific section I want to focus on tonight is starting in verse 27, where it says, And he, this is speaking of the prince to come or the Antichrist, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week or seven years and for a half of a week or three and a half years. He shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So, again, just to refresh our minds, after the 69 weeks, 
that Messiah shall come and be cut off. That that was the 69 week or 69 times seven year period um, between when uh, Israel was allowed to go back home to rebuild Jerusalem um, to when Jesus came into Jerusalem in his triumphal entry before he was crucified and he was cut off. Um, basically that 69 weeks and then there's this last week, which is what's being talked about here in verse 27, this seven-year period, where it says this prince, the Antichrist, is to come. He's going to form a covenant or some sort of agreement with many for a week or a seven-year period, which must be speaking of Jew- Jewish people because it says at the midpoint of that agreement or the three-and-a-half-year mark, he's going to put an end to sacrifices and offerings, which is something only Jewish people would do. It's speaking of those sacrifices and offerings they'd make at the temple which means there must be a third temple that's going to be built at some point. Uh, this covenant, uh, meaning that the Jewish people are going to accept this guy as some type of leader, potentially seeing him as the Messiah they've been waiting for, because as we talked about last time, there's a lot of Jewish rabbis, or there's a common thought that the Messiah that they're waiting for, because they missed out on Jesus being him, will be the one that allows them to build a third temple. Um, but uh, they're going to see him as this leader. Um, and many commentators believe that this covenant, this agreement, um, to some degree is going to bring peace to the Middle East, something that's been yet to be accomplished that many people have tried to do. They're still trying to do. Um, but they think to some degree it's going to bring peace because there's going to be have to there's going to have to be some sort of agreement to allow the building of the temple on the Temple Mount, which is where they'd want to put it, which right now is occupied by Muslims and in Islamic mosques, and they don't even like Jews to be up there doing anything. And so um, there's going to have to be some sort of agreement that allows that to happen. And then that prince at the three and a half year mark or the Antichrist is going to end sacrifice and offerings, and he's going to be responsible for this abomination, um, a word that means great idolatry in that. Uh, and, and Jesus also refers to that same event in Matthew 24, um, and ties it to this great persecution that's going to happen with the Jewish people starting at the midpoint of the tribulation. Paul also references that at great idolatry in Second Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. And he ties the Antichrist with this prince that's mentioned in Daniel 9 in that passage. And then Revelation 12 and 13 tell us that the Antichrist under Satan's influence is basically going to destroy, destroy the Jewish people in the last three and a half years of what Jesus called the great tribulation, um, but that God's going to protect 144,000 Jewish people um, that are basically the remnant of Jewish people that he's always said he's going to protect that ultimately are going to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and be saved. So that's just the Cliff Notes version of what I went through in the Word last month. And today um, we have got some other men up here. Eric Curtis, he's one of our elders who's going to be focusing in on this covenant that the Antichrist is going to make during this seven-year period and why, kind of looking at current events, there there appears to be a need for a covenant, a peace agreement, you know. And then um, Marcus Handy, or one of our other elders, um, our youth pastor, he's going to focus in on what the Bible says about this rebuilding of the temple and the desolation of abomination and some of the current things happening in the world in the preparation of the rebuilding of this temple, which are quite intriguing. And then Josh, um, one of our, 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 used to be our lead deacon. Now he's preparing to go in the mission field. 
Um, he's going to focus on what the Bible says about uh, persecution of the Jewish people by the Antichrist um, during this tribulation period and how, you know, all throughout history we've seen to some degree this this spirit of the Antichrist, which the Bible talks about, this anti-Semitism in the world and kind of this hostility towards Israel um, uh, in, in the world today, how that's kind of escalating. And so and w- and during this whole entire discussion, it's open for Q&A. So um, I, I would ask you not to interrupt, but you can raise your hand and I should be able to see it. Um, for those online, there should be a number that's shown where you can text in a question and I should receive that on my phone. And when it seems appropriate to have breaks, I'll kind of present those questions or answer them. So it's it's definitely for your guys' involvement. If there's something that you have, you're curious about or you want details on, We'll try our best to answer that. So with that, let me pray really quick, and then we will um, break into the discussion for tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful that it's all truth. We're thankful um, for what you have told us about the times we live in so that we don't have to freak out and get scared when we see the things that are happening in the world around us that just we couldn't have never imagined would happen other than the fact that you told us they would so that we wouldn't panic and we would know that things aren't falling apart. They're just falling into place. And we know that you're in control. That's just further testimony that you're in control. And that even though you're not the author of evil, you're, nothing is happening that's thwarting your good plan. Which we know it's a good plan because your word tells us that. We know how everything ends. And you win. And we're on the winning team. And we know that our time here is to be spent trying to save people to that team so they get to be with you as well when you return. So, Lord, um, may this be, uh, as it's meant to be, an an encouragement to us as we talk about these things, um, a, a way for us to be woken up, to be alert, to be aware of how short time is and how um, we need to treat every day as as it could be our last being used by you in the things that you have for us to do for your glory and to save those around us. So, Lord, bless our conversation and may it be used to edify and build each of us, uh, each of us up. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Eric. Thank you for that introduction, Pastor Chris. You're welcome. <clears throat> uh, so, yeah, what, as Chris said, what I'm going to focus on is just what is this covenant? The Jews will have with Antichrist, and why will it be necessary? And uh, we'll be—I'm going to be focusing pretty much on verse 27 here in in Daniel chapter nine. But first off, I wanted to just um, before we dive into it, just uh, thinking of about the Antichrist and this covenant that he is going to enter into, just remind us of of who Antichrist is, and maybe maybe not who he is necessarily, but some of his characters, and that is that he, um, the Bible tells us that he is literally empowered by Satan, that the activity of the Antichrist, sorry, that the the coming of the Antichrist is by the activity of Satan himself. And so um, that this, this Antichrist we know to be, um, which means just basically opposed to Christ or, or could be, it also means in place of, Christ is basically a counterfeit uh, Christ that's being presented to the world by um, by Satan himself, and so he has the characteristics of Satan, which 
and um, is like full of pride. The Bible tells us that um, sort of this this picture of Satan in heaven was that he uh, saw God, saw who God was in his majesty, that Satan was a created being who was an angel. But he says, um, I want to be like God. In fact, I want to be higher than God. I want to be worshipped as God and set myself up as high as God. And we even see in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus was tempted by Satan, what did he get? What did he try to get Jesus to do? Bow down and worship him, right? He wants to be worshipped. This is he wants to set himself up above anything, above the God Himself. Um, and then in Luke chapter ten, I believe it's verse. He said, uh, where Jesus says, "I saw Satan cast out of heaven like lightning." So because of this rebellion, because of this pride of Satan, he was cast out of heaven. And that didn't make him very happy. He Therefore, he hates God. He hates God's people because um, we're made in his image, right? And um, this covenant that we're going to be talking about a little bit is um, just one part of Satan's plan through the Antichrist to usurp the authority of God, um, to basically destroy God, destroy God's people, and basically thwart or destroy, or destroy uh, God's redemptive plan for mankind. And that's I love what Chris just prayed in part of his prayer was, there is nothing that's thwarting God's redemptive plan. Amen? Amen. And, so, and we know that Satan knows the Bible. He can quote the Bible. He knows what it says. So he knows in the end he's going to lose. I, so the, the question is often... Fielded, well, why, why does he even try if he knows he can't thwart God's plan? I don't know why. But I do think it's just because of pride. I, I heard a good analogy of this once. I just want to interject because I heard somebody explain it once of like, maybe you've ever been like somewhere like at a pool party and you have all your clothes on and someone's like, like threatening to take you in the pool. And you're like, okay, you can go ahead and do that. But if you do that, you're coming with me. And it, it's like, it's like kind of like that with Satan, you know, it's like, it's like he already knows he's, he's going to the pit, but he's going to take everyone he can with him. And that's why he's like, like he's described as like, like a, a lion, like this fierce lion that's roaming around looking for people to devour because mm. he wants to take everyone he can with him before that time comes. Yeah. Amen. Amen. So, so anyways, so this covenant is basically a covenant is, I think you guys probably know what a covenant is, but it's just like an agreement or a deal made between two or more parties. And um, this is, as laid out in Daniel 9, verse 27, it's going to be a strong covenant with Israel. I'm just going to read, um, well, Chris already read it. I'll read the first part of the verse here. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Now, if you're anything like me, I've been taught this, um, for years that he is, is speaking of the Antichrist and that the many is the nation Israel. I would like to go through this really quickly just to sort of explain this because if you're anything like me, I'm like, well, I believe what you're teaching me, but what do you mean many means Israel? Like, where do you get that? How does that even, you know, and he now, so what I'm going to start with here is he, it says he shall confirm a covenant. Um, and, and, and actually if you, read different uh, commentaries on this, there are a lot of people that will try to ascribe this heat as being Jesus. 
um, or, you know, the Messiah as saying, oh, no, he's going to confirm a covenant with the many and it's going to be good and he's going to come back. It's going to be great and all this. And then but I don't think that's correct when you look at this um, a little closer and just in the verse right above this, it speaks of the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So we know that in AD 70, the people, uh, that AD 70, the temple and the city was destroyed by the Romans. So we can, we can, uh, reasonably assume that the people of the prince to come destroyed this in, in that if, if it was Jesus who was going to be coming back, then why would they have destroyed the temple, destroyed the city, and then not only that, but after this, wings of abomination, desolate, desolators, all these things. It just doesn't really fit with Jesus. So I believe the he here is the prince to come, which is the last thing that was the subject matter, I guess you could say, in verse 26. And as you're reading it, it just makes sense to me that way. And then... uh the next thing here, he shall confirm a covenant, or some of your translations might say strong covenant. And uh, I want to turn to Revelation chapter 6, verse 2 really quickly, just to kind of have a um, a little bit of what I would think is like a parallel passage here. Uh, Revelation 6, verse 2 says, And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And we understand Revelation chapter 6 to mark the beginning of this seven-year period we know as the Great Tribulation, right? And at the very beginning of the Great Tribulation marked is marked by um, this white horse. There's four horses we know that come out. But the first one is a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and its crown was given to him. Again, I'll, you read a, you'll read different commentaries, different books. There are a lot of things out there that would say, oh, this is Jesus Christ riding in on a white horse and he's going to conquer and this and that. Um, the problem with that is, A, Jesus rides in in Revelation 19 on a white horse. He doesn't have a bow. He has a sword, which is the sword of his word, and coming out of his mouth, right? And uh, also, it can't, it can't be Jesus because after the first rider here on a white horse, we have... What is it? Pestilence, uh, famine. You know, we have all these horrible things. The next writer is coming after it. So I don't think when Jesus comes back that those things are going to happen. Amen. I also think it's interesting that in Ephesians 6, when it's talking about the spiritual battle we're in, that it says Satan's weapon is these fiery darts that are being shot at us. And this writer here, being the Antichrist, like you're saying, like with that, that, that thinking in that line, says he has a bow. Yeah, so it kind of ties those two things together. Yeah. Amen. What I would suggest to you is that this is a counterfeit, right? He's riding in on a white horse. He uh, has a bow. There's a crown given to him. So there's some kind of authority given to this figure riding in at the beginning of the tribulation period. And I believe that this is the Antichrist. And, you know, for reasons we already talked about, but um, he's a counterfeit, right? Satan is a counterfeiter. He wants to take what God has done, who God has sent Jesus Christ, and to counterfeit it and say, no, no, this is, this is the, you know, the Christ that you need to be worshiping, and he'll be presenting the Antichrist in that way. Um, also, something I like to point out, which I think is really cool, is this, for those of you who are 
Bible students, and if you're here tonight, you probably are one. If you like to study the Bible and, and dig dig deep into the meaning of different words and phrases and things like that, it's this. It's called we call it the law of first mention or the principle of first mention. And when we see a word or phrase in the Bible that is maybe has some complexities to it, maybe um, is a little bit uh, what's the word I'm looking for disputed uh, of, of how it should be interpreted. Uh, a good way to um, sort of wade through those things is to is with this principle of first mention. And we look at the word and see where it is used at the very first time in the Bible, study the context of how it's used and what it means, and then we apply that to the point of consideration. So um, someone shared this with me years ago, and I thought it was really cool. It said its writer had a bow, and there's all kinds of different interpretations of what that could mean, what it, you know, whatever. But the, the, if we use this principle of first mention, the first time, um, the word bow is ever used in the Bible is in Genesis chapter nine, verse 13, where it's God making a covenant with Noah. Remember, after the earth had been flooded, after all living things had been destroyed except for Noah and his family and the things that were on the ark. And he says, uh, he basically makes a covenant with Noah saying, I'm not going to destroy the earth with a flood again. And then in verse 13, it says, I do set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. So I believe this, this could be a direct correlation to what this bow is. It could be, which I would suggest to you this is what i believe that and i think it it could have you know it it certainly could mean that what chris was saying is you know shooting fiery darts he has a bow he doesn't have a sword but as he's as the antichrist is riding in at the beginning of the tribulation he's holding this bow which is a token of a covenant and this covenant is going to mark the beginning of this seven-year period the next thing is the many and this is one i've kind of tripped over for a while because again, I've heard this taught. Oh, the many. Oh, yeah, that's Israel. Yeah, yeah. He's going to make a covenant with Israel. I'm just like, and I look at it and I'm reading it and I'm like, it's not that I don't believe you. I just don't understand where you're getting that. <laughs> you know? So, um, evidently, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. Josh could probably tell you more about this, but evidently, um, this, even this whole chapter in Daniel is pretty, some of these things are pretty difficult to translate into our English language. And a better rendering of this is the many. They put the word the in front of the many. And apparently in that culture, in the day this was written, um, in the way in the original Hebrew, it would have been <clears throat> the readers of this day would have known that they were speaking of Israel. It was just kind of the way it was written. I guess it was a common thing that it was just, when it says the many, it's speaking of the nation Israel. Another thing and now that that's that's cool too, but I'm still in the back of my mind. I'm like, okay, I don't know anything about Hebrew. I'm just gonna have to take your word for it, right? One other thing that I really like is if we look right up at verse 24, just ahead of this, it says, "70 weeks are decreed about who, your people, and your holy city." So this whole decree, this whole section, this whole prophecy vision, whatever you want to call it. The subject matter is your people, Daniel's people, Israelites, the Jewish people, right? So when it says the many, it's talking about the nation Israel.
Amen? Amen. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so we have the He, the Antichrist, the covenant, which is just an agreement or a deal. It's going to be um, that we understand to start at the beginning of that tribulation period and then the many who is the Jewish nation. Now, uh, the second or the second part of the verse here, it says, and I'm reading from the old King Jimmy version here. I think it renders it a little better. It says, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. So three and a half years into this tribulation period, that the Antichrist, or the, the one who's has this covenant, is going to put an end to sacrifices and offering. And we know from Second Thessalonians chapter 2, that as Chris mentioned this earlier, that he is going to stand up in the temple and demand to be worshipped as God. So, why does this matter? Um, what does this covenant mean? We know there's a covenant, we've established the parties of the covenant. I believe that this covenant is going to be a peace treaty for the nation Israel and surrounding nations, but more importantly, between the nation Israel and this figure, Antichrist. Um, and Chris talked about this a little bit, but there needs to be some type of peace for uh, the Antichrist to come in in order to be set up as God, among God's people in God's city that was meant to be a city on a hill, right? A light to all the nations is where God has, you know, set his temple up. And there needs to be a temple for him to do that. And we know that from that verse there's going to be sacrifices happening, right? So there needs to be a temple for sacrifices to be happening and for even to have a place. Um, and right now on the Temple Mount, we there is the Dome of the Rock, so there's going to have to be some kind of peace agreement, some kind of settlement reach, some kind of covenant, you might say, to rebuild the temple. And um, I believe that's what this covenant is going to be moving towards. Now, you don't have to look hard to find articles, current news about uh, unrest, wars in the Middle East and Israel. And uh, by the way, we've wondered for years why can't there just be peace and security in that area? You know, why is everybody fighting and shooting rockets and bombing? And all I mean, why can't they just figure it out over there? It's because it's spiritual. It's, it's satanic, demonically inspired against God's people and, and their land. And there just seems to be no solution, right? There's, there's just no way to figure it out. Um, and one of the ways I believe that this man, the Antichrist, is going to rise to power will be with a plan to bring peace to the Middle East. And he's going to come on the scene, have all the answers. Maybe he'll have other uh, answers to other global problems such as climate change and uh, these other things. And everybody is going to look, at, look up to this guy and say, man, He's got the answers. We want him to be our leader. This is the guy. He's brought peace to the Middle East when no one else could. This has got to be the leader that we need to have in power. And um, that, and basically, it's it's he's going to bring peace to um, these areas of unrest. Now, another reason why I think this is going to why he's going to be able to just slide right in to this position is. Um, most of the Jewish nation does not accept Jesus as Messiah. 
And at this point in time, they are looking for Messiah to come to save them. They are actually waiting for and longing for their Savior, you know, which to um, basically save the nation and restore the nation. And Marcus will be talking about this, but rebuild the temple. And right now as we speak, there's the Temple Institute in Israel who they're gathering up articles. They're training priests to do the sacrifices. They are like, they want to build a third temple. And it's in the making right now, but they just can't do it. And when this guy comes on the scene, Antichrist, which we know as opposed to Christ, but also in place of Christ, they're going to look at him and be like, this is the guy. He's brought peace. He's making a way to build the third temple. Oh, we've got this peace treaty going, the covenant. Man, he's the one. And um, they'll welcome them him in as their leader. And um, it's very, it's you know, scriptures don't tell us but it could be that um, him coming to power will be at the same time with this agreement to rebuild the temple. It might start with the construction of the temple, three and a half years into it, you know, maybe at the dedication of the temple. That's maybe when he'll stand up and say, well, I'm God, I did all this, worship me, you know. Um, we, we don't know, but there's going to be there's there's going to be some kind of correlation with these events falling into place. Um, one last final thing about this covenant and that is uh, a verse I want to share for you from First Thessalonians chapter five. And in the context of this chapter is Paul is writing to the church of Thessalonica, um, writing to them about the rapture, the coming of the Lord Jesus, and the day of the Lord, which is you know the day of the Lord is just a phrase we know that is synonymous with the uh, culmination of last day's events and uh, judgment on a Christ-rejecting world. It's this uh, period of time known as the day of the Lord. And he says this in 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, chapter 5, verse 3. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. And... I believe this could be a reference to this peace that the Antichrist is going to bring in with centuries, you know, thousands of years of war and tumult and um, just no peace in the land, in, in the land of Israel, in Jerusalem, on the Temple Mount. There is, when this covenant is established, there will be peace and security. And that's what people are going to be saying. Oh, man, there's peace and security. Look, we did it. We've achieved peace. We've achieved a way to do it. And they'll be saying that. While people are saying there's peace and security, then all of a sudden, sudden destruction will come with the abomination of desolation. Um, And I believe that could be a direct correlation to um, this covenant. Why does it all matter? Well, not to... um, satisfy our curiosity, which in a way it kind of does, or maybe it just raises more questions, I don't know. Not so that we can be puffed up with knowledge about, well, I know know, how to interpret the Bible and what it says and this and that. But to show us that these signs are approaching, getting closer and closer and closer, that um, our salvation draws nigh. Amen? And um, I'd just like to read a verse from Mark Chapter 13, verse 35. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly 
and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Just kind of a, just a reminder of what we know about these things to, um, stay awake and know what's coming. That's a global verse. Amen. Amen. And then before I go, you guys have anything to add or any thoughts that you wanted to share? No? Okay. Great. Well done. Uh, so my task, uh, this evening is to go over three things. Talk about the rebuilding of the temple, what the Bible says about that specifically, um, also the abomination of desolation, and finally the current events that are setting the stage for the rebuilding of the temple. I'm going to kind of change it around a little bit because I think it'll set Josh up a little bit better. I'm going to talk about the rebuilding of the temple, and after that the current events surrounding the temple's rebuilding, and finally the abomination of desolation, and that should lead into what Josh is going to talk about. So, Okay. I hope. Well, you're talking about persecution, right? Yes. So that happens after the abomination of desolation. Okay, very good. Okay, so uh, Chris already mentioned Daniel 9.27, which says the Antichrist will put an end to sacrifice and offering, right? And he says, by implication, you have to have a temple, which is supported also by Jesus in Matthew 24. I mean, that's really the capstone where, where he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel... Standing in the holy place, right? Um, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea should flee to the mountains. And this was a this is a specific warning to the Jews of that time that the, this this persecution is coming. But I don't want to steal Josh's thunder. But I want to point out that it says the holy place. If anybody knows anything about the <laughs> the temple or tabernacle, um, here's some quick scriptural references. Exodus 26 talks about the tabernacle and how. There was a holy place and there was a most holy place, right? The holy place was where the temple furniture was, the candelabra, the um, table of showbread, the altar of incense. There, am I missing something? There's just the three, right? Anyway, I may miss one, but uh, all those things speak of Jesus Christ. Okay, I missed a few of them. <laughs> and uh, anyways, in First Kings 6, it describes Solomon's temple. And the um, the holy place is actually referred to as the inner sanctuary and then the most holy place. So all let's say is um, you can't have a holy place in, in, the, Jew, in the Jewish mind without a temple, mm-hmm. right? They go together. Um, one more thing I wanted to say that uh, adds to these implications that the, the temple will be rebuilt, although I think we've, we've killed that horse, but I just... I found it in Leviticus 17, 1 through 9, there's a specific command from the Lord to the Jewish people that they are not to bring sacrifices and offerings anywhere except to his altar before the tabernacle. Otherwise, they'll be cut off from the people. So you put all those together and there will 100% be a temple rebuilt. Um, It's going to happen. God's word says it, so it's going to happen. Seven holy... Oh, yeah. So Josh just... uh, uh, reminded me of the seven holy furnishings, um, the altar of burnt offering. Uh, well, the, that's not inside the holy place, though. There's seven, suffice it to say. All right, there's seven. Okay, there's seven items. All right, right here. Number of completions. <laughs> there you go. All right. So, uh, right, I've, we've kind of, we've established that the temple is going to be rebuilt. So now I want to talk to you about some current events surrounding the rebuilding of the temple. Um 
some of us are contractors or maybe we've done some construction. And you're like, well, man, bro, just, you know, we, we put out a bid on the temple, you know, holy temple. And whoever comes in low bidder, you know, meet, meeting our requirements and, and all these things, you know, um, well, that person will get it and they'll just put the thing up. But you can't just call any contractor to do this job because <laughs> the specs are taken from ancient like they're taken from the ancient Hebrew text in the Bible, okay? Um, nobody's qualified to really do it. Um, also, um, the Bible provides very specifics on dimensions and what's to be done to some degree, but then a lot of the other ways to, to, to make those things is written down in other, you know, ancient Jewish commentaries. So they're wanting to recreate a biblical temple as close to the original as possible. And in their minds, that is the only way to do it. Like nobody else can be trusted with it. It has to be done by Jewish hands in the promised land, according to the way they've always done it, right? And that's the, that is the way that they're going to honor the Lord. That is the way it's going to be acceptable to him. So um, anyway, the point I want to make, and I'll, I'll give you two examples, is these things have to be historically exact. Materials can't just be sourced from anywhere. So here's an example. The red heifer. After the temple is built, the, the sanctuary has to be purified by the ashes of a red heifer that's mixed in with water and some other things uh, like hyssop, um, uh, cedar wood, and scarlet yarn. They have to be burned together and then mixed into water to purify the temple. And uh, so if you had a temple, let's say you, you know, you call up Ben and you're like, all right, Ben, let's see. Oh, anyways, we can't do that. But let's say the temple is built and then, okay, we're ready to do services. Hey, anybody seen a red heifer? Well, actually, it turns out red heifers are extremely rare. And the specifications for a red heifer are that you can't even have one hair that's a different color. So they've, the, the Jewish people, the rabbis, have searched the globe to find perfect red heifers. And apparently there are some. I think there's a few in South America. There's some in, in North America to these red heifers. And so um, they've, they've identified and they've inspected these cows over the years, and they're pure red, so they're acceptable. But um, according to the rabbis, I don't think this is in the Bible, but they have to be born in Israel. So right now what they're doing is they're, they're flying um, frozen embryos and sperm to uh, cow sperm to Israel to artificially inseminate uh, cows so they, these red heifers can be born and a herd, a native herd can be raised in Israel. I mean, that is the extent of the, um, the specificity that the Jewish people are, are pursuing with regard to the things of the temple. One, one more um, example, the high priest's robe right? Just some things about it. If you read Exodus 28, it has to be made of one piece. So it has to be seamless except for the arms. And it's woven from um, three different, uh, actually it's four different kinds of thread, gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns. And so apparently it's a very complex thing to to weave a form-fitting garment with no seam. With no seam. So they had they searched the globe to find somebody that could do it, that could come up with a plan for a way to do it. And it, they turned out they found a, a master weaver, Judith Abrams. She lives in Connecticut, but she's a Jewish woman. And she is an expert in ancient weaving. She spent time with the Navajo. She has this old-looking loom. It's all made of wood, you know. And and, and so she has designed and and has, has um, woven the high priest's robe. 
And it's really uh, pretty just exacting. They're following the Bible to the letter. They're following all those rabbinical tra- traditions. Um, down to the down to the part where the the ply of the yarn and the dye used in the yarn has to come from a specific uh, crimson worm that they can only find in the in Israel. So it's just the point is is that and, and Chris said this, but the Jewish rabbis and people at the Temple Institute are methodically and systematically preparing everything for the rebuilding of the temple, the temple vessels, the curtains, the garments, the furniture, the red heifer, everything is being prepared. And they're well on their way. Um, Eric mentioned they're training priests. They're actually training priests on how to perform the sacrifices, how to lead worship at the temple, what specific songs to sing. They're actually making ancient instruments like the um, the, the stuff in the Psalms, the lyre, the harp of ten strings. They're making all that stuff. Um, so if you're interested in that, if you're interested in seeing the progress, the, the main place to go to is templeinstitute.org. So there's a lot of stuff there um, on the temple and the progress towards getting everything ready to rebuild it. So, okay. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say, and this has been mentioned too, is um, that one of the difficulties with rebuilding this temple is the site's very contested. The Temple Mount, uh, which is where the temple is thought to have stood, um, is under Muslim control. Um, it's occupied and operated by the Islamic Wafq. I don't know how, even how to say that. But that's uh, an organization funded by Jordan, and they basically are caretakers of the Temple Mount and uh, kind of like security up there. Um, there's two mosques, the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aska mosques, and because those mosques are there, um, they have claimed that site as Islam's third holiest site, followed by Mecca and I think Medina. Anyway, um, which is kind of ironic because nowhere in the Quran is Jerusalem mentioned at all, but... Um, I digress. So it's a contested site. So even if they could rebuild this thing, they've got to they've got to have some way. And I think uh, Eric was talking about that at the end. They've got to have some way to overcome um, the fact that they'd be building on a site that is claimed and has been ceded to uh, Gentiles, right? And it's a very holy place. So uh, one thing that came up in the news was the Abraham Accords. This happened while uh, President Trump was in office. And basically, it is a, it's a move to unite the three Abrahamic faiths, Christianity, Islam, and, and Judaism, and to try and find common ground. And um, there's some language in there that would suggest, that suggests that um, the three could worship together. And Josh, I think, covered this in an earlier um, update, but there is a little bit of momentum in that direction. And, and actually, I, I, I did a quick search on what, um, what, what is that? What's happening with the Abraham Accords? It's kind of interesting. It's created some controversy within the Muslim world. The uh, Jordanian Waf and the, the Palestinians are, are very intent on keeping the Temple Mount not a place for other faiths. They will allow like Christians to come up there, those of you that have been to Israel, but they won't allow you to pray. Um, open your Bible. Yeah, you can't open your Bible. You can't do anything approaching worship. Otherwise, they'll, they'll be on you like white on rice, right? And uh, it's actually caused some problems. They've gone to the extent where the nations that signed the Abraham Accords, Bahrain, I think, um, uh, what is it, UAE, they're, they're banning Muslims from those countries from entering 
the Temple Mount because they're saying, look, you're in league with these, these Jews and you're trying to tarnish this holy site. And so there's, there's actually a movement within the Islamic community to sort of remove their power over that site because they're being, they're being banned by the uh, strict um, uh, imams there. So all I'd say is it's going to take, like Eric said, a political um, move to, um, it's going to take a political move to, to change that. And uh, just a, a text that I came across, uh, Jeremiah 33, 14 through 18, and this may have been in Chris's teaching, but basically uh, is this uh, brief passage on the Messianic age. It talks about how the, the, um, the branch of David, um, which will be called the Lord our righteousness, will um, come in and sit on the throne. And, and then it says that Levitical priests shall never lack a man to uh, bring offerings and sacrifices. This, again, applies a temple, but in the Jewish mind, this is the verse that says the Messiah will rebuild the temple. That's, that's, that's how they interpret this. When the one that comes in the name, you know, that reestablishes temple worship, that's the Messiah. So um, just to kind of piggyback on what, what Eric was saying, but I want to return really briefly to the abomination of desolation um, oh yeah. I was just thinking about when Marcus was talking about the Temple Mount and the Dome of the Rock and the tension and how, like, how's that all going to work out? Um, Revelation chapter 11, um, in John's vision, it says, I was giving a measuring rod, like a staff. And you can't, I like this because you can't really measure something spiritual with it with a tape measure can you mm. like he's been told to measure something with a with a measuring rod that's how they that was like an ancient tape and so he's it must be something physical he says measure um rise and measure the temple of god so it's a physical temple but he says uh don't measure the court outside the temple leave it out for it's given over to the nations and there's like marcus said um controversy about uh where the where the original temple was actually at on the Temple Mount, some say it's where the Dome of Rock, Dome of the Rock was. But then there's this other thing. What's it called? The that little yeah, something like that. Where they where they actually believe was was the Holy of Holies. And so, if that is the case, which a lot of people think it is, the Temple could be and may be rebuilt on that site with the Holy of Holies right in that, and that would put the Dome of the Rock. Right in the outer courts of the temple, if they were to build it there, so it would kind of fit right in with what's said here. Yeah, yeah. The well, the spring, or the well, of the soul, whatever it is, it's a piece of granite. They say it's the top of the mountain, um, right there. That would have been where Onan's uh, threshing floor was. Okay, so returning to the the abomination of desolation. Um, just just, I know we've kind of we've talked about a lot of things, but uh, basically, um, yeah. So basically, this when the when the Antichrist comes in to the rebuilt temple three and a half years after this covenant, he is going to um, he's going to bring in what Jesus calls the abomination of desolation. So just to reread um, Jesus's words here. Um, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place. Let the reader understand, then th- let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And so this, this thing is going to happen. Um, I did quick, this is a super quick word study. 
Um, but the word abomination in the Greek is, um, if you look at the meanings, it can mean a foul, detestable thing. And the, the word itself is often used pertaining to idols or idolatry. Uh, the Old Testament um, translation of abomination is something that's disgusting. And again, a lot of those things are, um, a lot of times uh, idols are referred to as abominations. Um, I, I wanted to say in in First Kings, it says um, when Solomon started building the the, the temples, he built a, a temple. Or after he built the, the actual real temple, he started building these temples or places of worship for his uh, pagan wives. And one of them was a was was a temple to the abomination of the Moabites, Chemosh. I could mess that up, but I'm pretty sure this idol was given the title of abomination. So, uh, and the, the word desolation can mean ruin, despoil, or make desolate. And so the idea is that there's an idol that's going to be set up that's that's been uh, demonstrated in other parts of the text as well, and it's going to ruin the the holy place. It's going to defile it. And um, if you read Second Thessalonians two one through eleven, Revelation thirteen one through eight, or sorry eleven through eighteen, it's it's really clear that there there is an idol that's going to be set up in the temple. Um, and that marks the midpoint of the tribulation and the breaking of this covenant with the Jewish people. And so Josh is going to talk about that. But before I hand the mic over to him, um, I got a quick application. I love Bible prophecy. I love knowing what the Bible says. And I love understanding it. And I, I think that is super important just because of, uh, I think what's already been said is it's to make us uh, so that we stay alert and stay awake be focused on the things of the Lord, that we would know that the words written in the scripture are true. And so my application, um, it kind of touches real briefly on uh, 1 Corinthians 6. Um, Paul writes to the church at Corinth telling believers that they are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? When we place our faith in Jesus, we become indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And so he's exhorting them um, not to engage in sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. And why is that? In a very real sense, rebellion against God's plan for sex is making an idol. It's putting something, in this case sex, or the way that you have sex, before or ahead of God's will in your life. And so doing so would be defiling a place. That would be you, Christian, right? The vessel, the the temple of the Holy Spirit that's set apart for a purpose. We've been made holy by his presence, right? By the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and so, what if that's what if that's you, Christian? What if you're like, man, I'm a Christian, I believe in Christ, but yeah, I'm caught up in sexual sin. Um, well, the Lord has a prescription for you. The Lord would say, confess that to the Lord, right? First John one nine. If we confess our sins, He's faithful mm. and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and to repent. Literally, that means change your mind, turn away from your sin. Um, Turn towards the Lord with all your heart. Pray to, for strength to overcome that temptation. Deal with that sin severely. Um, make no provision for the flesh, is what the Bible says. Make practical decisions that get you out of temptation, even decisions where you might suffer loss financially, right? Relationally, etc. That, that's the meaning the pastor says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's not because God wants us to be uh, crippled, Physically, but the idea is we are to deal with sin severely. And so that, that's the, confessing it is awesome. 
um, we need to repent. We need to turn away from that sin and turn back to the Lord. And then finally, I would say, seek prayer, seek counsel and accountability. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. As it is working. So, you know, the body of Christ is here for support and accountability and encouragement and, and prayer. Don't dismiss prayer because prayer is a request to our Heavenly Father who has all power, all authority. He, he, can, uh, he can make a way for us to escape temptation. And, and the Word says that He does. That's always there. And, and He can keep us from falling. And so we don't want to be like the Antichrist setting up any kind of an idol in our life um, in, the, in this holy place that God's made holy. Um, we, we want to be people that are... Um, that are using uh, our, our, our temples of the Holy Spirit at, um, for his glory. So, okay. Amen. Yeah. Good word. Okay. The reason I laughed was because when I got home, um, I really felt the Lord going a different direction with tonight. So I've got all these notes, and um, I'm going to be all over the place. Hopefully not. Hopefully the Lord can just bring it all together. So Chris asked me to talk about uh, the persecution of the Jews through history and um, by the Antichrist during the tribulation. Um, at that three-and-a-half-year mark, when uh, the Antichrist puts up that image in, in the uh, Holy of Holies and declares himself to be God, the Jewish people's eyes will be open. And that is the point when they go, hold on a second. Jesus said... Um, in um, Matthew 23, right after he rebuked the Pharisees, right? Um, Jesus said, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then in Hosea 5, um, this was also foretold when he said, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. So that brings me to the point of what is the purpose of the tribulation? The whole purpose of the tribulation isn't for God just to to punish the earth. It's to bring to repentance the Jewish nation, to call to the Jewish nation to him. And... Um, in Hosea also, um, Hosea 4, 6, it says, My people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I have rejected you from being priests to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also have forgot your children. It sounds pretty dismal. Um, Hosea 4, 6 says, Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. And can, can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Uh, when their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly, dearly love shame. It honestly sounds like today, too. Um, th- these verses can just come to our nation and where we're at. Um, but through the Bible, there's pockets of hope. God has a plan for the nation of Israel. And um, he's going to use the tribulation to, to bring that to fruition. So the last three and a half years is called the time of Jacob's trouble. Now, the, uh, these are the words, this is from Jeremiah, these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. God wants to save Israel. For the first three and a half years of the tribulation, we find um, Israel is going to be living 
fairly in peace, building their temple and getting everything set up because they believe the Messiah has come. There's rabbis um, in the last 100 years, well, shoot, there's rabbis today saying things like, when the Messiah comes, he will help us rebuild our temple. And so they're they're preparing. They're, they're pressing on. They're preparing to do this. In John 5, 43, uh, Jesus said in John, I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. So that's the Antichrist is going to come in his own name. Jesus came in his father's name and they did not receive him. So uh, let me see here. Like I said, I'm all over the place. Okay, so Revelation 12 is a summary of um of the history of Israel and I have heard some crazy teachings out of Revelation 12 and there's people trying to connect it to constellations that are happening now in the stars but all all it is is a summary of the of the nation of Israel and let's I'm just going to read it really quick and this is this this is what the Lord showed me today so And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. Now, like what Eric was saying, we have to go back to the the moment of first mention. So you guys remember where that sounds familiar? Can you you guys remember where that sounds familiar? Story of Joseph? Joseph. Right. Um, And people try to make this woman the church. Well, as Pastor Chuck would say, uh, if... If this woman's a church, there's a problem because she's pregnant. And we're, we're the virgin bride of Christ, correct? So she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with the seven heads and the ten horns on its heads and seven diadems. And again, I've heard some crazy teaching about the red dragon. But if you just go down four or five verses, you find out the red dragon is Satan. It, it actually tells you what these signs are. The cool thing about the book of Revelation is properly studied it'll take you into every single book in the bible it's it's uh, it's a book of codes in a sense and and all this stuff is mentioned in the old testament so if you go back to first mention you can discover what what's being talked about okay where am i okay seven heads ten horns his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that she bore her child he might devour it that's jesus christ and what happened here was Jesus Christ came, he died, he, Satan thought he won, but he rose again, okay? She gave birth to a male child, one who, who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Right here, this is, at this moment, there's a, what, what we call a dispensational break. And these, these are throughout the whole Bible. And they're important because they're, it's what we call the church age. The church age, age is squeezed into these dispensational breaks. And there's a lot of bad doctrine that comes out of missing these. Um, in fact, we were talking about it over text last night. Um, there's there's a, a group of, of, of reform that think that all this has already happened in 70 AD because they missed the dispensational breaks throughout the Bible. For example, um, I'm going to show you another one that we went over tonight um, in Daniel 9. 
Um, Daniel 9, after, I'm just going to read this real quick. And after the 62 weeks, he anointed, the anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. That's Jesus. He shall be cut, cut off and have nothing. Jesus Christ came. He was cut off. He did not receive his kingdom. And the people, the prince who is to come, the Antichrist, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. It's an end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So right here we find ourselves a dispensational break. And we fast forward 2,000 years, and we come to, and he shall make a strong covenant for with many for one week. And for half of the week, um, he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the de- decreed. So you, you find you find that, okay, we're going one thing, and then we fast forward 2,000 years. Um, another one was when Jesus, remember he stood up in the synagogue and he read Isaiah 61. Um, Isaiah 61 says... Yeah, uh, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound. Dispensational break. We stopped there. Remember, Jesus stood up in the, in the synagogue and said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. Now listen to what he, what, what, what he skipped to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall rise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Now, in between that dispensational break, what's going to happen is um, Zechariah um, tells us, well, I think I already read that verse. And Zechariah tells us that um, a third of Israel is going to be saved. Two thirds are going to be cut off, and a third is, of Israel are going to be saved. The 144,000 are going to be sealed before the three and a half year period. Those are going to be 144,000 Jewish evangelists that go out and, and spread the gospel to a, a Christ rejecting world. They're going to be sealed. God's going to have them set aside for a purpose. But for the rest of Israel, they're not going to come to, um, uh, knowing who the Messiah is until later on. And God's going to use the Antichrist to do that. In Ezekiel 20, uh, 33 through 38, As I live, declares the Lord, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out from the countries where you are scattered. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with the wrath poured out, I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples. Remember, God's going to take Israel and they're going to flee. Where are they going to flee? They're going to flee into the wilderness to Petra. And as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the, of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord. I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge out the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So God's gathering the, all, the, all of Israel right now for a purpose. 
and he's gathering them to bring them back to him. But two thirds are going to to fall. One third will be saved. <clears throat> I like that Josh uh, shared that verse in Isaiah 61 because I was just uh, reminded of this today too. In Luke 4, when Jesus quotes that, uh, the last line, it says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, period. But if we turn to Isaiah 61, it says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, comma, and the day of vengeance of our God. And it's been said that, that and that's that dispensational break. It's, it's, a, it's a big fancy word that means that comma right there is the age that we're living in right now. We're living in this comma between the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And that's the church age is just is a is what you would call one of the dispensations, I guess. And then the other thing I think that um, another point he's trying to get across is those those of us that, that don't know this is there's a lot of teachings out there and a lot of doctrines, a lot of uh, denominations that teach and believe that God is done with Israel, has rejected Israel. They teach that we should not love Israel, that we shouldn't pray for Israel, that they're not God's chosen people anymore, and that Israel has been replaced with the church. That every time the Bible mentions Israel, that it's all oh, it's just talking about the church. And there, there is a lot of teaching out there like that. And people, I've had people just try to tell me those things, and they miss... Um, I believe what the Bible teaches pretty clearly in a lot of places and twists a lot of verses. So it's a doctrine that we really need to watch out for and we really need to be supporting um, Israel and praying for the peace of Jerusalem. And uh, it, it's, an, it's an important thing. God is not done with Israel. Yeah, he, when here in Ezekiel, um, God's going to have them pass under the rod. And if you read Psalms 23 and you read of the rod and God uses the rod, he, he holds it over and he, he separates the sheep from the goats. He's going to purge out the rebels from among them. Um, and that would be the purpose of the tribulation. But with, with what Eric was saying, um, there's been anti-Semitism in the church from the very beginning. Um, in fact, I found a ton of quotes um, about anti-Semitism from early church fathers and they're some of them are just downright crazy okay ignatius of antioch uh, taught that those who partake of the passover are partakers with those who kill jesus did you know that they moved um the celebration of passover they started calling it easter because because of that i've got a whole history of that and it's fairly interesting um justin martyr claimed god's covenant with israel was no longer valid and that the gentiles had replaced the jews so this goes back to uh, this was 100 a.d this goes all the way back to the beginning um ignatius wrote declared the jews that were uh, were disinherited from the grace of god uh turlton said blame the jews for the death of jesus and argued they had been rejected by god i'm sure you guys have heard all these arguments even today um, Origen, uh, he was responsible for much anti-Semitism, all of which was based on his assertion that the Jews were responsible for killing Jesus. Now, if Origen understood why Jesus went to the cross, he would know that he Jesus went to the cross for Origen's sin, and that the Jews, if yeah, if you guys understand. So, anyways, I have a why why would people say this? Why is anti-Semitism? Why does it exist? Because Satan does not like the Jews. 
Satan wants to, if Satan can destroy the Jewish people, then he, um, he wins. He wins because God has promises in God's word. There's so many promises of God's word of saving the Jewish people. Of Yeah, if he can thwart that, he tried to thwart it with Jesus on the cross. Shoot, he was trying to thwart it from the beginning. If you remember, um, if you remember at the very beginning when, when, well, before that, when, um, the children were in Egypt. God had the children down in Egypt for 400 years. What did Satan do in the land of Canaan? He spread out all kinds of enemies. There's all kinds of giants in the land. There's all kinds. He knew that that was the promised land because he was, he knew that it was promised to Abraham. So what did he do? He stacked it full of bad guys. Um, so back to the anti-Semitism we see here in nowadays, we, we see outright anti-Semitism happening with like neo-Nazis, the PLO, um, here in the U.S. However, we also see anti-Semitism within the church. And, and this is what we were talking about in the form of covenant theology. A large portion of denominational churches are covenant theology. They believe that God is done with Israel because they're covenant breakers. And, and the honest question is, aren't you and I covenant breakers? Mm-hmm. Do we live a perfect life? And here's another question for somebody that's a covenant theologist. The Jews didn't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We do. That's a benefit that we have that they did not have. So you're asking them to stand on a, the, the same level as you with the, with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which they did not have before Christ. Um, they like to uh, they like to take all the promises of God and apply them to themselves, but all the church all the uh, curses they, they they say are for Israel. So they take the promises and they go, you know, that's for me. But you know, so in Romans eleven it says, "Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will uh, then you will say the branches are broken off, so that I might be grafted in." That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. God pulled out the natural branches so we could be grafted in. We cannot be arrogant towards the Jews. We need to thank the Jews for the salvation because it was through them that the Messiah came. Jesus is Jewish. He's not a white Christian. He's he, he's <laughs> Jewish. Um Paul goes on to say, um, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Paul continues, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, we like to take that verse and apply it to ourselves. You know, somebody falls, you know, in sin and, and we try to raise them up with that verse. But that verse contextually has to do with the nation of Israel. God has promises that have not been fulfilled to the nation of Israel. And that verse pertains to them. It, 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 it's for them. The gifts of, and the callings of God are irrevocable. Um, so in conclusion... Hosea 6 says, uh, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down that, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord 
His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Um, Zechariah 12.10, and I will pour out upon the house of David. Now, the house of David, I don't know how you can fit the church into the house of David, but then again, and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication, and they shall look upon me whom they've pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one is in bitterness for his firstborn. Zechariah 3, 6 says, and one shall say unto him, what are these wounds in thy hands? Then he shall answer those um, with which I was wounded, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. God is coming back. Jesus is coming back to meet with his people. Um, he's going to be with them face to face in the wilderness and teach them himself. I have a bunch of stories here about current anti-Semitism. It's what's driving the Jewish people home. If you like not just anti-Semitism, but the war in Ukraine. 200,000 Jews are trying to make Aliyah right now from Ukrainian Jews trying to come come into Israel. There's Russian Jews trying to come into Israel right now, and they just closed the offices in Russia. Um, New York City, it was still the largest um, uh, population of Jews outside of Israel. And so something's going to happen whether it's anti-Semitism or something, they, they, they've been fleeing over the last two years because of COVID. But something's going to happen that's going to even press them faster to go home. So, um, yeah, I've got these stories up here. I'm not even going to go into them right now because I think we're running on time. I, I, yeah, well, I think what Eric... Wait, who is it? This you, you, somebody asked a question. I'm 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 processing and listening, just like you guys here. Somebody asked a question about why do you think that is, and it was to thwart the purpose of the Lord. I think another purpose is just jealousy. I think. I mean, that's probably the underlying purpose. But people see all these awesome promises, promised to Israel. They see God's plan, and they're like, "What about me? Yeah, I mean, because they're not so special." You know, I, I think that could be. Just, just the the prideful selfishness of desiring the things that maybe aren't for us, right? That could be a motivation of of humanity and kind of um, getting pulled in there. I, I think it might be it might be good to say this too. Um, and I, I I do not disagree with the anti semitism thing. It's certainly wrong. It's certainly a sin. But I have seen on the flip side the whole like information wars. Anything said negatively about somebody who's Jewish. Or, or um, what they're involved with, cast in the light of anti-Semitism, right? Which I think can also be wrong because if somebody is in sin, right? They're in sin, be they a Gentile or a Jew. If somebody is, you know, doing something that's wrong or corrupt, um, you know, they need to repent. They they need to be that needs to be exposed and dealt with justly, right? Regardless of whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, I, I think the 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 this idea of of pride though kind of runs through uh and and sort of racism kind of runs through um not just the united states but everywhere people think well people like me are better if there are just more people like me everything would be better right and and those people are really to blame you know pick a, a race that's not your race or 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 an ethnicity that's not your ethnicity right <coughs> and so i think there's there's this uh walking by 
by sight, but it's a very jaded kind of an evil perception that casts others that are different from yourself in, in kind of an evil light. And so I see that as as a as another reason for anti-Semitism too. It's just the pride that comes with being a fallen um, human. We we see we see people that are different than us, and we falsely attribute all the evils of the world to them when when in fact no, it's because they're fallen sinners just like us. They need the grace and they need the salvation that comes from Jesus Christ. So. I think it's also, and Josh pointed this out, like in a lot of the verses he was saying, it's also important to understand that it's not like the the nation of Israel gets a free pass into heaven. Basically, I think Josh said this clearly, that they have to come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is in fact their savior. And what God is going to use when he's done with the church age and goes into that tribulation is he's going to use that to get their attention and open their eyes to seeing that Jesus was their Savior all along, and those Jews will be saved that place their faith in Jesus. Yeah, what Chris is talking about, there's there's a heresy out there called dual covenant theology. And it says that the Jews, as long as they're abiding by what God said in the Old Testament, we don't have to share Christ with them. We don't have to do anything. They're in. They're, they're automatically in. And that is that is horrible theology. The Jews need Jesus just like we need Jesus. It's, it's this, we all go, get to heaven the same way. Mm. Um, Jesus even said that. He said, there is no, there, I'm going to slaughter the verse. Help me out here. Um, slaughter it and then we'll, we'll figure out what it is. <laughs> no one comes to the Father but through me. Yes, nobody comes to the Father but through me. Um, and, and so, and that's, that's actually a big thing right now. There's churches, there, there's two groups right now. We're a rarity. People that love Israel and that want to see them come to Jesus. It is a rarity in the church to um, to have that view. I just think it might be the word of the Lord for us and whoever's watching just as a warning for us tonight to not jump on that bandwagon mm-hmm. of, oh, well, yeah, maybe the Lord is done with Israel. Because I've, I've had people approach me, oh, you're a Christian. Well, let me tell you about this teaching about how God's really done with Israel. And it's like... Going through all this weird, just, oh, here it is, and here, 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 see, he rejected him, this and that, and he rejected him. And, and it kind of like, I can remember this one time, this guy, which just started telling me about how, he's like, oh, we're from this church, and so-and-so, and yeah. And, and I was like, listening to what he was saying, I was like, huh, actually, wow, interesting. That's really interesting. I'm going to look into that, you know. And the best lies have a little bit of truth mixed into them. Okay, so we need to be very careful to not buy into this lie because it is it's, it is quite common, as Josh was saying. And uh, I'll just end here with Psalm 122. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Mm-hmm. Amen? Yeah. If we want to be secure, <laughs> pray for the peace of Jer- Jerusalem. Love Jerusalem. And I would also point out just a general promise in Scripture um, for you guys, Bible um, scholars, you, you or people that study it, you, you already know this, but when God is calling the nation Abraham and he's telling Abraham, you know, this nation he's going to make out of him, he says, you know, I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, talking about Jesus that would come and, and be the salvation of mankind. But that that there's a 
there's a promise there. I'm going to bless those who bless you. And I even think how um, if you look at like, I'm not trying to get political, make a political argument for this, but if you look at the last administration that was way more pro-Israel, all right, this nation went through a season of prosperity. And you look at the current administration that is way less pro-Israel and you see, you know, way less prosperity in in this nation. I'm not saying it's only because of that, because obviously there's consequences for sinful choices and there's sinful choices being made in all levels of government now. So there's repercussions for that. But having said that, there is a general promise, too, that if you bless my people, I will bless you. And you see historically that those that don't bless them don't get blessed and those that do do get blessed. That that's proven itself to be true over and over again. So um, and then one last thing. And this is kind of off topic, but it's just a question somebody had. So I want to answer it really quick before we pray and end for the evening. Somebody just had a general question in that section that that um, uh, Josh was reading in Revelation 12, where it says that um, uh, when it's talking about this red dragon, and it says in verse 4, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And their question was, are those third of the stars related to the third of angels uh, where it says later in that passage says that with Satan Satan was thrown down to the earth I'm pretty sure this is where that doctrine comes from is is no, this it's, it's this no, verse it's the next one verse 9 verse 9 verse 9 says and the great dragon was thrown down the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan and the deceiver of the whole world he was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So that's one place that appears to be establishing the context of what's being talked about here. But also, I've said this before, you let the Bible define itself. And if you go back to um, Revelation 1, when Jesus is talking about these seven stars in his hand, he defines what those seven stars are. Uh, he says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So back in Revelation 1, he establishes that stars are another th- terminology that he uses to describe angels so it kind of establishes a precedence when you see these stars that appear to be talking about angels yes god's used that before in his word to describe that so i would say yes that is what's being talked about there yeah also i think isaiah 14 that passage that's the prophetic passage condemning the king of babylon has the stars he was saying Isaiah well. 14 also has a similar passage that's using stars as a reference I to angels. Right. No, you're right. Yeah. 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 No. And and even back in um, Joseph, and um, when when his brothers, when the, the vision that he had, the 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 stars, the moon, uh, the the sun, the moon, and the stars, Abraham. And his, what was his mother and the angels are all going to bow down to him. Well, Abraham, no, Joseph, excuse me. Joseph is a type of Jesus. So if you, if you put Jesus into the middle of that story, you can discover a lot of cool things. Um, like during the, during the seven years of famine, Joseph is feeding his brothers and his brothers have no clue who he is. He looks like a Gentile. But he's a Jew. Does that sound like our Jesus? Jesus is going to take care of his brothers through the tribulation, but he's going to look like a Gentile, right? Um, Joseph takes a Gentile bride before the seven-year famine. Hmm. 
curious. Um, there's, there's so many, but anyways. Yeah. yeah. Amen. And one of the reasons we like to have these nights is it just allows us to kind of dig into scripture at a deeper level because a lot of these, you know, like like the guys pointed out, there's different thoughts on these things, different, you know, uh, uh, interpretations of some of these scriptures and stuff. And really, I, I find it most beneficial when you're trying to talk about these things instead of reading what this book says about it or what this man says about it. Let's just dig into scripture and, and try to understand what scripture says about it. You know, looking at the words, looking at the, the principle of first mention, looking at other places of the Bible that use these similar, similar terminologies and what they're, they're, they're speaking of and let the Bible define itself. Because time and time again, I find that it's really not that hard to understand if you're willing to take the time to dig into it and look. And I much rather trust what God has told me than what man or somebody else has said. Um, cause at the end of the day, as a pastor, I got to give an account for what I teach. And if I just go before God and say, I just taught what you said, I feel pretty good about that. If I go in front of him and say, well, I was going off of what I thought history said or what somebody else told me, I don't feel as confident about that. So um, these these nights give us an opportunity to kind of in, encourage the body to dig deeper in these things for themselves too because the answers are right there in front of you. So hopefully it's provided for you and it is an encouragement to you. And again... Do you have something to say? Go ahead. Uh, Chris has said this before, but don't trust what we say. Mm-hmm. Look it up for yourselves. Be a, Be a Berean. Look through the scriptures. Dig through the scriptures. Find out for yourself what the Bible says. Amen. Amen. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and, and the point of all this, again, is to, to help us keep looking up. Basically, when Jesus says you see these things happening, look up. You know, it helps keep our focus on him, knowing that our salvation is drawing near. Amen? Amen. So let's pray. Dear God, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the uh, insight it's given us, Lord, into the things to come. Uh, Thank you, Lord, that it always proves itself to be true, that it defines itself, that nobody is ever able to prove it wrong. And and to an even greater degree, it proves itself to be true because it tells of the future. It has successfully done that up to this point, and it will continue to successfully do that. And we thank you, Lord, again, for the hope it gives us knowing what our future is and knowing that it's all good and that nothing will ever uh, get in the way of you accomplishing your good, pleasing and perfect will, Lord, for us. So, Lord, help us follow you into that will as you lead us into it. In Jesus name. Amen.